Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. As always, good morning, Mike. Good morning. So uh, this morning, I figured we'd, we'd start this conversation talking through uh, the question I've actually started in asking in interviews, um, but it's, it's when do you move on from a company? When do you know it's time to move on? And I'd like to hear your thoughts on that, uh, both, both in you know, when do you move on, but also when is it actually time to stay? Uh, I've had a couple conversations over the years with good friends who have, of course, struggled with just this idea of uh, I'm not I'm not feeling maybe purpose at my company or I'm not feeling like this is what I want to do, and so um, they they switch jobs. Sometimes they completely switch careers. Um, often I've seen they haven't actually uh, made it far enough into their career, um, and so they just totally go try something completely different, and they spend maybe a year or two doing something completely different and then they try something else completely different. And in, in some cases, unfortunately I've seen now, you know, six, even eight, 10 years later, they're still at entry level positions because they've just always been chasing this green field. Um, in, in other situations I've seen people leave and do well. Um, they've, they've been able to leave and, negotiate higher salaries in the same career field. And, and so sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but regardless, I've seen sort of the mental uh, toil that's taken, and these, these are particularly mm. believers. And so, um, you know, through that journey, just that, that, that continual, not constant, but continual struggling with when do I leave the company? Um, what should I be learning here? Is my time here done? Should I try something different and try something new? So I was hoping, I, I, I do think that resonates and I do think it's somewhat generational. Um, I, I see it even just in the secular world at work frequently, particularly in my career field uh, of kind of hopping to different companies. So wondering, um, how do you how do you interpret that? What, what lens do you see that through and, and maybe what lens would be helpful or is there a shift that would be helpful for for people maybe in, in my shoes um, or in the, the shoes of those stories that uh, that would take away a little bit of that mental turmoil? Well, that's a, that is a good question. Uh, and uh, I like um, the mental and emotional turmoil in it. That takes a lot out of someone. So I, uh, let's start with uh, kind of a reset in terms of um, thinking about our careers. So the, the word career comes from the French meaning uh, race course. And uh, we also have a sister, our cousin to it is careening. And um, so it has the idea of frenetic activity. Um, so I'm not, um, I'm always cautious when someone asks me about career planning because I think, well, should we even have a career? Should we think in that terms, hmm. in, in those terms? Um, I think that if, for believers, but even for people who are not of the faith, uh, they're more drawn to the idea of calling. And in fact, uh, many years, probably 25 years ago, Paul Bronson made a killing on this stuff. He wrote a series of books. I don't think he knows Jesus from his blue jeans, but he would sit in coffee shops and write books about calling. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was half right. Of course, the problem is that half truth is a whole lie because um, he never wrestle with the fact, well, if you feel called, isn't there a caller? Mm. Um, so here's the, but here's the challenge with calling because it too has become a popular topic for a lot of writers. And <laughs> so by the way, here's a joke inside our little industry, not yours, but mine. Um, the old adage, nice work if you can get it. And uh, so the people who write on calling have kind of been able to carve out something where you go, mm, that's nice work if you can get it, but <laughs> not many people can get it. And they write these books on calling. And I often think, well, that's not very helpful if you're, uh, you know, 
working on the assembly line at a, at a Chevrolet plant, and you're going calling, schmalling. What are you guys talking about? So I think the challenge in calling is, uh, is for example, Pat, you've got your uh, phone probably on your hip right now. When will the next call come? <laughs> I don't know. That's right. So first and foremost, I think that once you set out thinking about career, I think we're a little bit off the path. If we think more in terms of, I want my life to be a calling. Now, what that does is it does set up a sort of a, a probably a tension might be a good word or a bit of a mystery to it because you don't know when the call is going to come. So what do you do? Well, scripture does say that the, you know, the uh, plans of a man, you can go ahead and set up the plans, plans of a man or a woman. Uh, but the Lord directs the steps. I think there's something there. And here's, here's uh, what I mean by that. A friend once said, it's far easier to steer a moving car than a stationary one. And uh, wherever you are right now in life, if you start with a few propositions that or assumptions, that uh, God is in the providence of God. If you believe in the providence of God, there hasn't been a mistake at this point in your life, more than likely. Unless you're dealing drugs or run a, a prostitution house, then you ought to rethink what you're doing. But otherwise, if you've just been making the best of it and somewhere along the way you begin to have this stirring or this restlessness, don't start with the, with the old, what I've often heard people say, oh, I just wish I'd gone to this school or wish I'd done that that's called wishful thinking won't get you anywhere you got to start with where you are at that moment and consider that God doesn't make any mistakes I went through some of this Pat because I uh, the the further I got away from the seminary that I went to I went to two different seminaries or actually you got degrees from two different seminaries but the first one it was just okay and there were times when you know in the years later I'd go yeah I wish I'd gone to XYZ seminary well especially if you're rightly married to your wife who went through the four years of the first time and she goes, too late. Uh, <laughs> we are on our way. <clears throat> I also remember at the age, I think of, uh, yes, it was, I was 41 and I uh, called one of my mentors on the West Coast because I was thinking of pursuing a PhD program. And he essentially said, too late. Now, here's what he meant by that. At that time, the field I was going into, you had on average 300 newly minted PhDs chasing on average one academic opening. And you're going to be competing against these 26 to 20 year old buckaroos. And uh, he was essentially saying too late. Mm. Now, by the way, that's even better advice these days when you see that enrollment is down 16% in U.S. colleges and universities. That was in the paper yesterday. Boy, academia is going to be a tough road to hoe. So if you're feeling called to that, just understand you're in a meritocracy where it's going to be very, very difficult. So let's get back to calling. So if you start as, sort of start with a reset that wherever you are, unless it's just out and out sin, um, which would be very few, really, very few vocations. Uh, Luther felt the only two that were illegitimate were prostitution and banking. So let's just assume if you're a banker right now, you're okay. Let's, just, <laughs> let's assume that Luther missed the point. But the first one, yes, if you're a male giggle, gigolo or a prostitute, yeah, you ought to rethink that thing right now. Repent, stop sinning, and look at something else. But, if, but in terms of this idea of moving on, I sort of, have we ever talked in these podcasts about Coco Crispy's Christi, Coco Christianity? I believe we have, yeah. Yeah. I still come back to part of it is delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart, which I call, which Augustine translated, love God and do what you want to do. 
Now that to me, by the way, is very workable theology. And more importantly, it's really good anthropology. I, I happen to think it's probably the way, or seems to be the way, that God designed human nature. Because if we're made in the image of God, God does whatever he delights in. Psalm 115.3, our, our Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever deli delights him. Heavens, plural. That means he's present right now in this room today. He's in heaven, but he also saturates the heavens, these levels of heavens that are the abode of angels, and ours is the abode of human beings. And so he saturates the space right around you. Now, that might be helpful in beginning to think about calling, that you're not expecting a long-distance call from heaven. You might be expecting a whisper, a nudge from someone who is bathing the room that you're in. So you start there. And I, and I think that, that you have to, uh, you know, we've talked about this before with Coco Crispy's Christianity, is I have found the people who set themselves toward loving God and loving the things that God loves and the order in which he loves them and sets out in that direction and sees that as the main task of discipleship, the right ordering of our loves, has a much easier time feeling calling. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that. That's interesting. And I know for some, I know for the engineering types are going to go, that, that's not practical. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sorry, you engineers out there, we just had to say it. There is, there is something about American Christianity that is a gum chomping management style. Yeah, let's get practical. By the way, that, that indicates often to me that you've never been that close to God. Because I can't, I've never seen anyone, nor do we read in scriptures, anyone who ever meets God and goes, okay, that's fine, God, but let's get practical. The most practical person out there is God. Now, if it's you find it impractical that he would speak to you, I would suggest the issue is you don't have much of a friendship with God. And I say that because he can use human agency. Familiar with that term, human agency? Yeah, I think we've, we've hit, it on, uh, hit on that before as well. Yeah, so it's just this idea... Well, I'll tell you, it's a tip-off when someone says, well, first of all, we have your vertical relationship with God. Whoops. If he inhabits the room, what, is he on the ceiling doing that Fred Astaire thing in that old movie with Ginger Rogers? Um, what? Google it if you're a millennial. <laughs> he saturates him. So there's no such thing as this vertical relationship with God. But if, if, if God saturates this room, then... Um, you you ought to have a you ought to have this ongoing sense that um, he's talking to you, or he can bring along people. I'll give you an example. So I moved on at the age of forty one from the pastorate, but God used three different lunches, three successive lunches, three successive weeks, three different people. They all had the same word from the Lord. Now, that's extraordinary. I get it. It also tells you I have a thick skull because a lot of people, God just has to speak once and it gets done. But three times. And the overwhelming message that they had was, as that's the last person put it, you're holding on to your kite and it's being blown hard and you won't let go of it and follow it. And we were Bertucci's Pizza. And I remember as much as I love pizza, I dropped my 
slice of pizza because I went, dang, he's got me. I had a good gig. I was getting good marks, high marks from what I was doing. I was a pastor by many appearances, very successful. And God was telling me, it's time for you to move on. I've got something else for you. Came home that day after driving around Columbia, Maryland for two hours because I knew I was going home to tell my wife I'm resigning, which I knew would make her day. And um, <laughs> that's a joke, listeners. <clears throat> Can't detect the sarcasm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's um, moving on can be, God can use people. But I think what you have to, I think where it, where it has to be elevated is for the genuine followers, followers of Christ, or the active followers, or the, what we'd call the ardent followers, is you pursue God hard and you want him to order your loves. Therefore, if, you, if he orders your loves, you can love being so-called stuck in a job for a period of time, because you're not stuck in a job. So, I mean, question on that there, are, are you, are you basically saying like stuck in a job here would be simply you haven't been called elsewhere? Yeah, see, I don't, I don't know. Here's, here's the great mystery, so to say. God doesn't suspend the laws of the universe just for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So that I have this sensational calling that I'm just like, <laughs> I'm the luckiest guy in the world. <laughs> That's why most of the books written on this stuff, I don't think are very helpful. Because they're written by people where if you, you go, well, that's great. You got, a, you got a great little setup you've got. You're able to make this thing. But, but a very small percentage of the population are what are called innovators. A... It's like 3%. And innovators and entrepreneurs are given to, by their nature, to say, you know, I'm not happy here, but I'm going to sit down and do this. But first of all, everybody can't be Elon Musk. And, um, you know, my wife Kathy isn't that. So I'll give you an example of Kathy. Because she would feel called to the work she does as a reading technician in the public schools. But how that came about was when I launched Clapham Institute, we, you know, the finances were tight. We didn't have benefits. Certainly didn't have putting away money for kids for college. And so she said, uh, I'm going to go to work. She had been a stay-at-home mom. We had both worked with the campus ministry prior to that. So she was familiar with the professional world. But... So she had an appointment at a bank because she had a background in that. The day she went, they said, no, no, your appointment's the next day. There was confusion on that. On the way out, someone's uh, a friend. She saw a friend who said, well, you know, over the Board of Ed, they're hiring. And she went over there, applied, was hired. I think it's 18 years now. And at the school she works now, I'm now privy to, to her work. She works, you know, we work in the same house now. Uh, as a reading technician, 96% Hispanic. And I would say Kathy feels called by God to that vocation. That's the Latin word for calling, voc- vocal, vocation. And um, it, this, this sense of calling sort of grew into her. And, um, and what she's been, what she pulled together with many others for this pop-up pantry once COVID hit is just a remarkable story of someone who feels called. And by the way, this would be a distinguishing mark between a calling and a career is the few, the handful of people I know that, that are participating in this pop-up pantry. It could be Christians at our church to teachers. Now, here's what I'm saying. It sounds like a critique. I'm not. Here's what I'm suggesting. This thing takes about 75 volunteers every Saturday to pull it off. It's coming from a wide swath of people, some believers, some not, a vast array of churches, some as far away as the eastern shore of Maryland. 
But here's my point, Pat. You don't put in the amount of hours it takes to have offered provisions for now over 30,000 people this summer if you didn't feel called to it. Because this is not a career boost for her. She gets paid squadouche. She gets paid nothing. And I think we're calling evidences in people is oh god has called you here that's why you put it that's why you go the second mile and i found that i've just been surprised at how few of the believers i know covid fears and what have you i don't know what drives it but calling pulls more out of a person than anything else i've ever seen os guinness has a good little book on this called the call and he talks about extraordinary movements in history by people who felt called. Again, you may not feel called, but here's what I was talking about earlier. That, that's, that You can tell my hesitancy in, in giving a lot of advice on this is what we have to take into account is God is not mocked. We reap what we sow. And this is what I mean as a collective, as a nation. We have taken on so much debt over the last 20 plus years that when I used to teach a course for recently minted college undergrads, I pointed out that for many of them, you would have been making upwards of $30,000 more a year if we weren't financing the debt, the national debt. Now all of a sudden they go, oh, I mean, when they just handed everybody a $1,200 check recently, and now the next package looks like it could be upwards of $2 trillion, where's that money come from? The tree in the backyard, Mike. That's right. <laughs> There's the tree growing on Capitol Hill, and <laughs> it is dropping leaves right now like crazy. Um, so there's only two ways out of this. We'll give a little econ 101. There's only two ways out of a debt. You can grow your way out. In other words, the economy, um, you you have more surplus, you have more revenue than the debt, you pay down the debt, or you can print money. It's called quantitative easing. I love the obfuscation there. George Orwell warned about that. The governments would begin to talk in ways that you have no idea what they're talking about. But what you're talking about is printing money. When you print money, and if you have twice the amount of money in circulation than was before, then your debt is now only half of what it was because the money is only worth half as much. So let's just say if the government owes in unfunded liabilities and debt, say, $80 trillion, if you pump twice as much money in, you now only owe $40 trillion in real money. The problem is you've taken that out of the earnings, say, of a millennial. So here's my caution for millennials. Dear millennials, and go ahead and blame a boomer if you want. Okay, boomer. But um, you have been rocked twice. 08 and now COVID. And what that does, Pat, is humanly speaking, it's sort of, it's a lower ceiling in terms of what are the opportunities and possibilities for you. Let's just say you came out and you were, first thing you're doing is pulling shots at Starbucks. Well, Starbucks laid off a pretty healthy amount of its workforce. Or maybe you worked in the restaurant industry. That has been crushed. Or maybe, uh, I was reading about a woman, she graduated from a college, Christian college, and she uh, came out with, uh, well, I think it was dollars $30,000 in debt and had worked her way up to try to get rid of the debt, but couldn't ever afford a home or anything because she was paying down this debt and working at Macy's. How's that working out? Mm. Not well. Not well. And so I think, again, um, you know, John Adams said, facts are stubborn things. And this whole notion of calling and what have you I think it's got to be wrapped up some way inside of that 
as a nation, we get the leaders we deserve. That's the difference in a so-called democracy or representative government, is we get the leaders we deserve. And when we get leaders on both sides of the aisle who say, you're suffering financial hardship right now, so we're going to send you a big check. You would have to have a very narrow view of the economy, God, your faith, how economies work to go free money. There's no such thing as free money. Winston Churchill had an amusing little quote. Uh, yeah, I get it. It was, wasn't very ethnically sensitive. He said, but he said, the, the people of Asia, he said, could, never became civilized because they never learned how to pronounce the word no. And so when I see someone come through college, I mean, I read the story once about a woman who went to, a, uh, she's a bright woman, but went to this uh, private college, came away with 80000 in debt. I mean, right now, I think the average figure is between 28000 and thirty. You, you never gave thought to, <clears throat> maybe you go for a semester and work for a semester and go for a semester and work for a semester. So you come out with zero debt because when you come out with that debt, you uh, you have said, you've by saying yes to that debt, you said no to a dozen things and some possibilities coming out of school. And so the idea that you're unhappy where you are moving on you just have to take that into account and be pretty courageous. So I'll give you some quick examples of that, I can tell you, of people who have done that. Different circumstances in each one. And uh, so we'll name names, but we'll keep in the family. <clears throat> so my son-in-law, Pat, got his MBA, and he was uh, working for a, a firm, a national firm, probably perhaps even international, really well known for how it develops those in sales. And you're probably familiar with it, uh, the larger name I can't remember, but it was basically, uh, you know, maybe wine, gallo, so on and so forth. And Pat was doing very well. In fact, when we first met Pat, he would usually bring me about three bottles of red wine. So I thought, this is the man Jennifer ought to marry. <laughs> and <laughs> sure enough, she did. But in servicing his clients, Pat began to notice that in this industry, some of the uh, larger profit centers were inner city selling now fruit flavored vodka, which it doesn't take a brain surgeon to know. This, this is part of kind of the moral deterioration of the uh, inner city. And Pat began to have great uh, anxiety about this. Uh, is this really what he's called to do? Uh, because he's a man with an active faith. And so as he began to pray, and so Pat now works in, for in, in medical sales, and it has more of a sense of a, a, re, of a redemptive. Now that's, that's what we talk about uh, desires, calling, and the fact that though the, see, the, he had some of the um, assets necessary to be able to make that kind of shift, the assets that comes from an education, and so on and so forth. So. You might be that kind of a person who has that level of confidence and the opportunities to make that shift. But not everyone falls in that boat. And here's what I mean by that. C.S. Lewis made an interesting observation when he said, truth is not democratic, and really nor is the kingdom. And by democratic, he meant that yes, we're equal in the eyes of God, but opportunity is not equal. He said it's meritorious. And I believe you know what that word means. There's, there's, a, uh, there's a hierarchy. That's right. And it's earned. It is the last lines 
from that sergeant in Private Ryan. Earn it. So I might, for example, go, I really ought to be um, you know, at this level in company XYZ. Well, they're going to ask us to see your CV. They're going to ask for your resume. And frankly, some of the schools that some of us go to can't compete in the eyes of these people hiring with other schools. And to sit there and go, yeah, but God can do anything. Well, first of all, let's get clear on that. God can't do anything. He can't lie, for example. He operates within his nature, which is love, but he can't lie. So to operate under the assumption that God can do anything is a fool's gold. Now, having said all that, God can speak to you through circumstances. So here's the circumstance. So here's another story from our family. My oldest son, Mark, had his own video editing company and so on and so forth. Obamacare made that very difficult to sustain full-time. So he began, he put his resume out there, um, looked around, and uh, came into work with an, uh, a really an excellent organization in downtown Baltimore. And I would say also it's broadened his experience and his um, understanding of the power of institutions and so on and so forth. So circumstances. Also with um, our son, Stephen. Stephen came out of, with you, Pat, and came out of the University of Maryland and headed into finance. But we also always watched that he had, he'd really so much enjoyed his time with Young Life and so on and so forth. And he was just fabulous with kids. And so last year, maybe the year before, somewhere along the way, he said that he was going to step away from finance and was going to become a public school teacher. And um, now you understand, when you do that, you're taking quite a cut in pay. And so he's kept his foot in the finance with a small firm part-time, but he, I just watched, and we, Kathy and I have watched him blossom in terms of he's the best of what teachers can be and ought to be in terms of the energy, the enthusiasm, and basically the love for the kids. And uh, I wish there were more teachers like that. Uh, I know the teaching profession is underpaid, grueling, but that that still is doesn't therefore justify how many of the older teachers I see, they are bitter, barely put the time in, complain. We do well to have more teachers like Stephen. And like some I see at the, the school where Kathy teaches who are just wonderful. But again, that was more of an entrepreneurial kind of, um, it just came out of, I know I can do a lot of things, but this is what I really enjoy. This is what I can see myself doing for the rest of my life. I think if you were to make that kind of a move, you would have to take into account, A, how brave are you? B, are you financially responsible? In other words, you can live with less. And, um, you know, really how confident are you? And you can't make that stuff up. There are a lot of people that are just not that confident. Yeah. Well, you, each of the stories is, is uh, has an interesting point to it. You know, Kathy's uh, was, it sounded like, was a bit of a realization after. You know, like mm -hmm. the, the danger sort of of the story, I think you even mentioned it, this pop-up pantry, is like she felt, for that specific instance, she felt a call to do that. It was like, well, until I feel a call, I'm not going to do this thing, right? That's the That's danger right. of looking at that mindset. Um, but you had mentioned she had already felt this calling of her being being a um, a reading assistant. Um, she felt that after she started doing that. It's not like she was not going to go pursue that path uh, because she didn't felt, feel called to. And I think that's... that's right. That's interesting. I resonate with that very much so of sort of suddenly realizing, oh, I, th I think I may have found or stumbled into my calling. It wasn't right. that I felt a call and then 
pursued it. But the, the, and, and, and Pat, uh, your son-in-law, that's an interesting example too, because that's almost a call away from, you know, I, I feel a tugging in a different direction as opposed to this. I'm not sure if I enjoy wine sales. That's a very For different sure. question. Um, and then of course I've, I've seen Steve go through some of what you're, what you're talking about. And, um, yeah, he is phenomenal where he's landed now. It's just incredible. But something you you didn't note, but I've seen is Steve was full on into the financial realm. I mean, he he was pursuing finance. That's right. It wasn't like he started with one foot in the door until he could figure something else out. I mean, he he sort of submitted to that path of I'm going to go down this hard, and I think eventually felt a a strong pull away. But that's, that's, I think, worth noting because that is a difference. I mean, seeing that path versus I'm going to dabble in this a little bit and I'm going to dabble in that. And, and that's not everyone's case, um, but that can be a danger because that can be a mindset that I've, I've seen amongst millennials. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Um, I mean, because listeners could listen to me and go, uh, that's a that's a dad blind loyalist so on and so forth. But you know Stephen, so Stephen our knucklehead. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. He doesn't do anything halfway, and um, so you're right. He he would have done well in finance. He would have done well in business. Um, you know, he's kind of he he is the one. Um, actually, it was someone said of me when I, when I first went to grad school, and I discovered grad school is not hard work as much as you have to work hard and uh, I could remember that first my first day in, in my Greek class and I'm thinking I'll never learn this stuff and then I looked around and I said well if these knuckleheads can learn it and millions of people have learned it I can learn it and I discovered it's just hard work and if you're willing to work I mean it's you have to work hard but it's not necessarily hard work it's more the volume and so on and so forth so if you're not afraid of working hard you can do particularly well. You don't have to be the most talented person in the world. And uh, Stephen, he he reminds me that he just he works hard. So you're right, because uh, I the old adage is often um, those who can do and those who can't teach, and uh, ha ha ha. But <laughs> it's occasionally true. Um, but here's a case where, well, he could have. But it's more his uh, first love or his greater love. So yeah, those uh, those are. Um, and and well, you know what it underscores is, I think that the calling is a the legitimate basis, but um, we have to take into account there's it's complex. We don't have to make it needlessly complex, but we do have these situations. For example, what if you're a one-talent person, two-talent, or five-talent? Because there's going to be more expected of you the more the Lord has given to you. And, and again, that's difficult for some to hear because they think, oh, no, no, we're all equal in God's eyes. Yes, we're equal. But I've been around some really outstanding leaders, and they are rare birds. It would not be a congenial world if everyone was a 10 out of 10 in terms of leadership. It just, you know, you can take that up with God as to why that's so, but it just, it's it's, it's simply so. And um, I think, I think that's the kind of the complexity. Here's another one. You know, years ago, I, uh, had a conversation like this with a young man. He was 29, and he'd gone to this Bible college, and then he got his uh, PhD from another Christian college, and he wanted to teach at a uh, one of the better schools in the city where he lived. And won't mention the city, won't mention the schools, but you'd be familiar with them. And um, the reason that I was spending some time with him is he said, uh, I can't get there. And I said, well, you're right, unfortunately. Um, he said to me, he goes, why didn't any Christian ever tell me this? Mm. That's a tough one. Yeah. I've That's that a before. tough one. <clears throat> so there you are, 29. 
but uh, Don won't mention any schools because it'll offend someone if I mention the school. But he was not. It just wasn't going to happen. And that's where I think it's these kind of these silly notions sometimes, frankly. They ought to be called out as silly or fanciful or illusory. That, But I feel called to that. Or God can do anything. Um, I'm sorry, my friend. But we reap what we sow. That's part of the reason why we've talked about these podcasts that American Christianity is in exile, in part, because exile means we operate outside the networks where cultures are made. And part of it is our fallacious thinking, even about calling. I mean, it was, it's reported early on that after William Wilberforce came to faith, he asked some of his newly found friends in the faith, um, should I stay in Parliament or should I go into ministry? And, um, you know, whatever what he was thinking about. And uh, one of them replied back, we respectfully request that we suggest you do both. And so part of our notions are also that we think, okay, well, I'm in this job, but I'd like to eventually do kingdom work. And even that, see, that that's those are the things that sort of cripple us when we think about calling and career. Uh, my one of my kids was with a group of guys the other night, and the guy was saying he had wanted to work hard at this career for the next few years and then step away from it and do kingdom work. We've just sort of set up a system, Pat, where this makes it difficult to think about, you know, when do I leave and when do I stay and what have you, because um God is sort of a, a distant notion. We're sort of on our own, and we're doing these jobs, which, by the way, we probably talked about before, but that's the old English word meaning criminal activity, robbery. It's where you get the idea of a bank job. So if you're, if you're in a job, you're already off the, the ancient path for what work ought to be and what it can be, and it's going to just make it more difficult to think about when do you stay, when do you go, what do you do, and then, again, you just I think if you're a responsible Christian, you take into account larger issues. So the, the schools that I went to and the degrees that I got form a ceiling as to how far I can go up the ladder, so to say, of influence. It just simply does. And of, I mean, of course, there are exceptions, but what you're talking about is, by and large, that is that is a fact of reality. Well, someone once said the exception proves the rule. Yeah, yeah. And in that, I just I highlight that because that is uh, that's something that's a message I would have heard years ago, and immediately was sort of along those lines of like, Mike, I could be that exception. And I think what I was blind to during that time was the amount of pride and, and hubris in that statement. And that's really what was fueling me. It wasn't a calling from God. It was, it was pride. It was hu hubris. It was, it was uh, wanting to control my own. I mean, destiny is kind of a silly way to look at it, but wanting to control my own life. And uh, it, w it really wasn't until I felt more of a submission to what God's calling on my life may be. Maybe I don't actually, maybe I'm just not cut out for this thing was how it started. And then slowly it was realizing, I don't know if that's how, I don't know if that's how God really created me. I don't, I don't know if I possess the talents for this current path I'm on and maybe it's worth shifting. And yeah. after embracing that, after kind of laying down my ambitions, did I see and start to sense calling? Man, gay listeners, take that to the bank. <laughs> and here's why. So you reminded me of something, Pat. Two things. The Apostle Paul, first of all, you never hear him writing about career and when do I get in and out. It's just, but he wrote these words. Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by, you know the word? No, I'm not sure. Contentment. Mm. 
Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Google it if you've never heard it before. <laughs> well, and, and contentment, I think there is often, well, we perceive that often too much as a, uh, a feeling that's received, not a feeling that's pursued. That's right. <clears throat> and we also um, see it as uh, passivity, right. which it isn't. But it also, um, I think it opens us as Jesus' bride to, I love you and I'm content. But if you call or nudge or stir or any of those things, I'll be, I'm responsive. And in being responsive, um, I think you're, you're closer to having a life of calling. So that was the first thought when you said the second is, I just got to say this because you know, I get the right. I was a pastor for eight years. I want to say for those in vocational ministry and the pastors and the rest of us, stop writing books on vocation. <laughs> because, you know, as a pastor, it wasn't until IBI actually, now I was fortunate. I had some opportunities to actually kind of see and operate and work as a pastor in the business world. And I, I could see how 98% of what we were saying was so utterly irrelevant. And, um, and that's because the so was a church planter. So as a church planter, I could basically, if I wanted to, and this often, this, this typically happens when you plant a church, you start a church, you shape it around your preferences, your identity, your personality. That's what's called great work if you can get it. But try doing that in the wider world. And not only that, but this is a good point brought up by Jim Collins in the subsequent little pamphlet that goes with his book, Great to Good, which is an outstanding book still to this day, worth reading. Is uh, He did, after Great to Good, the for-profit sector, he then studied the social sector, hospitals, churches, faith community. And he said what stood out to him, the biggest difference is in the social sector. So that would be the church. Revenues are not tied to performance. So what did he mean by that? Like what was the point he was making? Well, the company you work in, are revenues tied to performance? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very fact. much so. <laughs> Simple answer. Straightforward. Yes. Let's not talk about your company. We'll say, I run a coffee shop. Pretend. Imagine I run it. My performance is, I sell crappy coffee for crappy service. How will that affect my revenues? Uh, they would go down. He said in the social sector, revenues are not tied to performance because you can self-define success. In the faith community, we do this all the time. I mean, if I hear this once, I hear this hundreds of times, especially amongst men. I don't get much out of church. I don't get much out of the sermon. But nobody asks, so they don't tell. So how does the church staff define the success of the sermon? Hey, one or two, three people really said they liked it, so it was a success. It was a success. I've been trying to suggest to pastors over the years that the best research says, and Ted takes this research seriously, even if you're a phenomenal speaker, the attention span of a listener in America today is pretty much shot after 18 minutes. If you speak beyond that, you're only speaking to hear yourself talk. If you're measuring that they're actually going to pay attention, that's different than hearing. Hearing is to hear the words going in, it's called in one ear and out the other. But paying attention 
is in the Bible talks about is something you're actually going to then ponder, chew on, do something about, so on and so forth. If that's your aim in preaching and you take seriously human nature and calling, you would think that you wouldn't preach any more than 15 or 18 minutes. But that's ignored. <clears throat> Again, this doesn't work then they'll have in the business world. I'm in the business world and I say, we have the best coffee. But by every exterior measure, my coffee is only 50% good as my competitor. Then my revenues are going to go down. But in the faith world, if by every exterior measure, my communications are 50% as effective as any other similar industry, I just ignore them. If you operate in that kind of a world, I don't think you ought to be writing books about calling. Because you're in an industry that does not have exterior measurements for effectiveness. Whereas the company you're in, and, and this was Colin's point, and every great company has those. It's called the stock market. It's called private equity investment. It's called sales. It's called so on and so forth. So mm. all that say, you know, my little plea here at the end of our podcast is, uh, you know, if anybody writes anything on calling, it'll be someone like you, Pat. Because I think it would be, it would be more webbed into the complexities of, it ain't as easy as you think it is. Now, Wilberforce had the good fortune of having some more seasoned Christians that kept him out of that dichotomy of, I'll stay in Parliament for a while and then I'll leave Parliament and get into kingdom work. And thank God that he had those kind of seasoned Christians. The average millennial, I don't think, does. And uh, I think the average millennial would read some of most of the stuff we have out there in calling and would go, I don't get it. And um, I think we've taken the mystery out of it that um, you don't know when that phone's going to ring and it's in your pocket. But I think if we thought more in terms of delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. That is, love God. Do what you want to do. But understand, you may not be able to do everything you want to do given we're in a fallen world. So godliness is what will get you through because it's a means of great gain if accompanied by contentment. Mm.